Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, James the First! With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! And uh, welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the kings and queens of Scots from Kenneth McAlpin to James VI. Bit of admin. Mm. Last time we were in your bedroom. Yes. Things didn't go well. We're back to the office, to the studio. <laughs> the window has been fixed, to which uh, we have to thank uh, my father. Mm. Uh, Ali had several very good attempts that were perhaps too oh, good. I'm so frustrated. <laughs> oh, and also, um, I'm having a lovely slice of cake with my tea today. You are. Victoria sponge, delicious. So, it's been a while since we've done a Scottish episode, so yeah. uh, probably it would be helpful for everybody to have a bit of backgroundy stuff. Mm. So, Ali, where are we at? We are... Who's the last fella? So, <laughs> <laughs> since we did Robert the Bruce, mm. we've had something of a pattern of weak kings. Yeah. Basically, the last hundred years have just been weak kings struggling to establish their authority in mm. opposition to increasingly independent nobles yeah. who are kind of running the show. So we had David II, who spent time exiled in France, then imprisoned in England. He was really annoying. Then we had Robert II, who secures the new Stuart dynasty, but mm. he's quite old when he starts off. He gets reduced to a figurehead by his sons, oh, yeah. while the northern and southern laws just kind of do what they want and decide diplomatic policy and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Then we had Robert III, who had been made an invalid by a horse kick before he became the king, and he ended up effectively being sidelined by his own younger brother, the Duke of Albany. Uh, so Albany was ruling as governor in place of Robert III. Robert tried mm. to establish his youngest son, David, to be a rival to Albany, but Albany yep. just ended up murdering him. Brilliant. Then Robert established his court around his second son, the young Prince James. Yes. Uh, but in a moment of crisis, he tries to send James off to France for his safety. Yes. James gets captured by Got English it. pirates off Flamborough Head, mm. taken to Henry IV in England. And shortly after that, Robert III dies. And this is where our story goes next. So James has got to try and undo a hundred years of weak monarchy, um, powerful Uncle Albany that killed his young, uh, his older brother, mm. and he's just a child and imprisoned in England. I tell you what, though, um, my predictions is he's going to do quite well because we we're in the pub the other day and we were chatting, <laughs> and I rather grandly said, "I reckon for most people this will be the first Scottish king anyone will have heard of." And then I quickly corrected myself and said, "Oh no, what about Macbeth?" And then you followed with and Robert the Bruce. So, <laughs> I mean, there are a few, but this is definitely a biggie. Well, I mean, the thing is, you've heard of the fact that there are Jameses. I think that's. Ma- Do you necessarily know which one's which, or is it because of James the Sixth that you would think of as James, James the First? Because James yeah. the First of England. Yeah, might be that. Mm. Are you l- expecting Shakespeare to make it appearance <laughs> in this episode? Let's hope not. Well, let's find out about James the First and see if Shakespeare pops up. He's the son of Robert the Third and Annabella Drummond, and he's born on the twenty-fifth of July in thirteen ninety-four. So he's nearly twelve years old when he becomes king in fourteen o six. It's really... I'm 1406. This is uh, not at all modern, but I feel like we've been in the Dark Ages for a long time. And mm. we're, it's getting we're, a little brighter yeah. in here. It certainly is. He's a, he's a change from the previous ones. We've had a couple of older kings in a row. We've now got a, a younger man coming to the throne. But mm. what do we think he's going to look like on the Heritage Limited oh, yeah. playing card? Ali? 
Hmm, they're gonna but because we've had this history of older chaps, he's going to be young. With the, I'm thinking a sort of getting near some sort of Italianate-looking Renaissance chap, maybe. Because mm-hmm. um, there's a weird phase here, isn't there, of, of English kings going from knights in shining armour, what on earth is that on your head and what are you holding, <laughs> to Henry V, and then it all gets normal again. So I'm thinking something like that. Let's find out. Oh. Well, I mean, uh, no, not that at all. This is, if you had to draw, oh, actually, if you had to draw Father Christmas, this is what you'd draw. <laughs> he's just been interrupted before he's put his white beard on. Yeah, before he's sprayed it all up. Uh, if a child were to draw a king with red and sort of ermine, you know, around the collar, that's it. Now, he is actually the first Scot for whom there is a portrait. Oh. Well, it's not quite contemporary. It's about 16th century, but... Oh, yes. Well, that's, the red. That's not too dissimilar from that. I mean, they've swapped on the card a crown for... 19th century pin cushion <laughs> but um, other than that yeah the card's quite accurate uh, it's quite a strong chin certainly certainly quite hairy I quite I mean I'm he's in my camp with a the nose there quite a big big beezer going on Walter Bauer uh, describes him saying that he was of medium height a little on the short side with what? a well proportioned body and large bones strong limbed <laughs> and unbelievably active Henry the second job, maybe. Though uh, later on, apparently, this uh, activity obviously ceased because Pope Pius II, who saw him later in life, said that he was stocky and weighed down. No, oppressed with his own fat. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got a young, energetic man coming to the throne. Perhaps uh, something a little better than what we've had before. Hope so. The problem is, he's an English prisoner. Yes, that doesn't bode well. He's going to be under the thumb. Evil Uncle Albany is confirmed as governor in June 1406, so he's just carrying on running Scotland, Mm. as he was basically doing before, largely unchanged. He's now in his 60s, so he's getting on a bit, but he's also easily the most supreme chap in the country. No one can rival him. However, impressively, there doesn't seem to be any attempt or suggestion that James isn't going to be king with the situation, so he's quite quickly styled as James Our King by the uh, Regency Council, and there's no push to try and get rid of him or move him out of the line or just declare him null and void or anything. There's an acknowledgement that he is the king. Does Albany have kids? He does. Okay, he does right, that kids. is surprising then. Um, so, initially, James is a prisoner, of course. He's sent round various castles, uh, the Tower of London, Nottingham, Pevensey, Kenilworth, Windsor. Oh, lovely. Quite a nice tour. Yeah, it's a lovely. <laughs> Especially <laughs> this time. I'll tell you what, 1399, <laughs> whatever it was. No, 1406. Yeah, that would be brilliant. Um when Henry IV was told that James was uh, just going to France for his education rather than any other things going on, Henry apparently quipped that this was completely unnecessary because I speak good French myself. Um, arrogance. Uh, but he was actually treated really well by Henry after this. He's given uh, great respect to proper education, and like you were hinting at, he is basically a Renaissance man now. Does poetry, music, sport, a bit of philosophy. Nice. Uh, and he becomes part of the king's household. So, you know, mm. he's, getting quite, he's quite a comfortable existence. Good. In his captivity. Um, and he also falls in love. Oh, this has got... Yeah, this is Renaissance. He writes a poem, of course, mm. King Esquire, mm. uh, a long poem detailing his imprisonment, his oh. life story, and then there's a key moment where he's feeling glum and despondent. He looks out of the window, Windsor Castle, and he spots a beautiful maiden strolling in the gardens that captures his heart. Are you going to read me the poem? Because you know how I feel about poetry. It's 117 lines long, so let's get this over with. (laughs) 
the woman that he spots is called Joan Beaufort. Ooh. Now, she's part of the powerful Beaufort family who are descended from John of Gaunt yeah. via his relationship with Catherine Swinford, which is actually the line that ultimately the Tudors yeah. count their claim from. Brilliant. Um, brothers are very powerful at court, so she's quite a quite a good match. Mm. Now, it does seem to have been a genuine love match. Obviously, James is writing this sort of lengthy <laughs> yeah. poem about her. Um, but he's also, for her, he's this imprisoned king. It's quite chivalric romance, harking yeah. back to the good old sort of days of knights and yeah, you couldn't and script that, that. Sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, although usually it's uh, in it's usually the uh, woman <laughs> the in the rent. tower, yeah. but but he's frustrated. He's still a prisoner, so he can't marry her at this stage. Does he let down his hair? Uh, well, he's pretty, he's pretty let down in his oh, portraits, yeah. isn't it? So mm. <laughs> now, in fourteen thirteen, Henry the Fourth dies and is succeeded by Henry the Fifth. Uh, Henry V, very determined, capable military leader, provides strong and very absolute form of kingship. Mm. Henry England. Mark V. Um, and Henry V also, of course, starts the Hundred Years' War with France, or restarts it following Edward III's claim to oh, yeah. own France. Um, and this is a time when France has got a mad king, internal divisions, and sure enough, Henry has a magnificent victory at Agincourt and goes on to almost completely conquer the country. Yes. Now, initially, Henry seems to have been a little bit unsure about James, but they obviously actually develop a pretty decent relationship. So in 1420, Henry sees the benefit of taking the King of Scots with him to France because mm. the Scots are actually fighting for the French at this time. Okay. So at the Siege of Melun in 1420, um, Henry gets James to basically tell the Scots to surrender because he's their king and they should do what he says. Yeah. So when they don't and keep on fighting, Henry at the end says, well, I can execute you all because you're all traitors. Wow. Dark. But <laughs> yeah. the, So this is under Albany's control. So the Scots have been sent there by Albany. Yeah. But Henry V has got the king of Scots <laughs> telling yeah. them. What a bizarre situation. James is a bit of a pawn, but they develop a better relationship. Uh, he becomes a trusted figure. He travels with Henry all across uh, Europe, and he is actually put in charge, or nominal charge, of one siege against the French. Right. He attends the wedding of Henry V and Catherine de Valois, sits next to Catherine at the banquet. That's pretty big status stuff. Knighted by Henry in 1421, and he even joins the Order of the Garter. He's English, isn't he, now? He's mm. fully... Uh, you can see there's going to be trouble when he goes back. Hmm. Now, he's not the only Scot to have been taken prisoner by the English. No. Now, you asked about whether Albany's got any children. In fact, his eldest son, Murdoch Stuart, was actually imprisoned even before James, after one of the various Scottish defeats. Right. So we've got Murdoch Stuart, Albany's son there. We've got Archibald, the fourth Earl of Douglas. He's the one that lost a, an eye and then a testicle. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've got quite a few important people there. However, Douglas gets himself released... Murdoch is released by Albany doing a bit of negotiating in 1415, and then after that, Albany kind of doesn't really bother negotiating with the English anymore. Why? Because he's like, well, I've got my son back, Douglas is out, and to be honest, I'm quite happy being in charge of Scotland, so why am I going to bother going to great effort to get the king back? Mm, okay. Are there, is, are there factions within Scotland that do want him back? There are factions, and uh, when Albany uh, dies in 1420 at the grand old age of 80... Wow. Murdoch takes over from him, and he's not quite as uh, politically astute as his father. He struggles to keep uh, that sort of group mm. together. His own son, Walter, actually kind of rebels against him. Henry V of England dies in 1422, and his son, Henry VI, is just a baby. 
So the English now are very keen to get some money, which they'll get from a ransom, yeah, and also to have a friendly king of Scots, so they don't have to worry about invasions. Oh, while they secure the alliance, his while life. they secure mm. Henry's uh, succession, Murdoch's forced to send an embassy to negotiate, and finally we have an agreement: the Treaty of London. James will be released for sixty thousand mar- uh, marks, or about forty thousand pounds. Is that a lot? Uh, it's less than David II's ransom. 100 years earlier. Hmm. Um, they, apparently, these are to pay his expenses and maintenance. <laughs> right. So it's just, it has just been a holiday. A bit of a holiday, yeah. yeah. Uh, but they do take 10,000 uh, marks off for Joan Beaufort's dowry. Um, 21 Scottish hostages will come to England as surety for payment, and there will be a seven-year truce between England and Scotland. Oh, this is turning out roses. So on the 1st of February in uh, 1424, James and Joan finally get married. Mm. Uh, in the Church of St Mary Overy, which is now Southwark Cathedral. Oh, right. And then they head off to Scotland. He's met by a Scottish embassy at Durham in March, mm. near the border, where Murdoch hands over the seals of government. Wow. This is all very adult behaviour. And then the 21st of May, James and Joan are crowned at Scone, King and Queen of Scots. So when was the last time he was in Scotland? Because he went straight back and was crowned. Uh, so just weeks before he was um captured and became king so 1406 so it's been 18 years and how how old is he when he comes to the power uh so well he's nearly 12 when he becomes king but he's nearly 30 now actually so getting he to really rule. hasn't been to scotland i mean he's his he might have memory of it as a child but memory of it as a child but his sort of formative years yeah. have been in england right at the same time though he's basically getting to start to rule at the age of 30 having had a very good yeah, grounding so education in it. and mm. grounding and following on from Henry V. A good tutor of all people. Indeed. But, of course, there are people in Scotland that weren't that keen for him to return. Mm. We have something of a Cold War where no one's quite able to take any action. So first among these, of course, is Murdoch Stuart. He knows that James isn't necessarily going to be very positive towards him. Yeah. Let's not forget that Murdoch's father murdered James's brother. Oh, Right, yeah, good point. There's an interesting dynamic there, isn't there? Yes. <laughs> um, so he's got lots of allies still, Murdoch, uh, lots of territories and earldoms that his allies own, and he is technically the heir to the throne until James has a child. Uh, because he's his... Because he's the co- son of the next... Bro- brother, yeah. Brother from the previous generation. Right, yeah, that is really tricky. Um, his son, Walter Stuart... Um, had actively opposed James's release. Obviously. He feared it would prevent them continuing the war with uh, f- France, fighting for France against the English. And he's the heir. So quite quickly, James invites him for a chat at Edinburgh Castle. Brilliant. And then arrests him. Oh. Sends him off to Bass Rock, which is where James himself was isolated before being captured for a while. So Good, a bit of a... He does like his poetry, doesn't he, this yeah. man? But Murdoch and co. still have something of an insurance policy in the Great Army of Scotland. So currently, in France, is about 6,000 Scottish force, uh, Scottish troops under the command of Earl Buchan, who is Murdoch's half-brother, and Douglas, one eye, one ball. <laughs> <laughs> They've been winning great acclaim in France, um, very well respected, and obviously they're pro-Murdoch. So if James kind of tries to do anything at this point, there's 6,000 very capable soldiers and impressive military leaders who Ready. could come back and do something mm. about it. And these... these- Scottish troops that are in France mm. are fighting for the French against James's mate, the King of England. Yes, yeah, so the uh, Treaty of London stipulated that any Scots who were already in France could keep on fighting as part of their truce, but they wow. couldn't send any new ones. Gosh. 
James needs his own allies. Yes. he's got strong enemies. So he first turns to his last surviving uncle, the Earl of Atoll. So this is actually from Robert II's second marriage. Right. So it's a younger brother of Albany. Now, initially, he had kind of aligned himself with Albany, but he'd found that his own personal sort of territorial ambitions in Persia had been thwarted by Albany dishing out lands to all of his allies. Mm. So Atoll's kind of turned against uh, Albany and is now willing to support James. Right. He also reaches out to Alexander, the Lord of the Isles. Is he the guy who's going crazy? Well, so we'd had quite a long-standing issue with the Lord of the Isles. So yeah. These are the guys that kind of rule the Hebrides, the western Isles of Scotland, but mm. they're also incursions into sort of northwest Scotland, yeah. the county of Ross. Previous kings have been trying to fight against them, but James thinks, well, I need some friends, and you know what you've done a lot of, fighting against the Albany Stuarts. Yeah. Why don't you come and work for me? Yeah. Which they do. Boom. So he's got the Lord of the Isles on uh, side, he's got Earl Atoll on mm. side, he's got some important people on his side. Mm. And then he has a real stroke of good fortune, the Battle of Vernouille. Right. The Scottish army suffers a disastrous defeat in France, Buchan and Douglas are both killed and the force is completely wiped out. What did uh, <laughs> Douglas lose this time? His head. Yes. <laughs> what, <laughs> Whatever what? was left. <laughs> Um, he's he's minus one eye, one ball, and a head. <laughs> it's the end of Douglas, and it's the end of that great insurance policy yeah. for Murdoch. Oh dear! James takes the initiative, arrests Murdoch and his other son Alexander, followed by Walter Stewart's father-in-law, the Earl of Lennox, who'd also been a bit rebellious. Good now, move. Now Murdoch's got one last son still at large, um, and unfortunately nicknamed James the Fat. Oh dear! So James the Fat raises a bit of an army. Burns the uh, town of Dumbarton, but fails to take the castle. And then mm. when royal agents head up north to deal with him, he's forced to flee to Ireland. That's pretty lame. Pretty lame. And now he's got um, rebellion against the Albany Stuarts, against Murdoch et al. Because Murdoch's son has rebelled and burnt Dumbarton. James can now say to all the laws of Scotland, see, traitors. Right. So he's getting the country on his side. He is. And with this done, he has the trial. And sure enough... Walter, Murdoch, Alexander, Lennox are all executed. They were found guilty. They are found guilty and executed. James, mm. in a stroke, has wiped out his rivals. That's how you do it. And he gains three major earldoms, which have a over £1,000 a year annual income. Oh, he just took their land? Yes, Quite and kept right. it for himself rather yeah. than giving it to other people. Hmm. Good idea. Then he's got to deal with some other troublemakers, namely his erstwhile ally, the Lord of the Isles. Oh, yeah, this old chestnut. So, so there have been perennial problems with them. Albany had done a bit of fighting against them. Now, Alexander had worked with James to get rid of Albany, mm. but then Alexander starts styling himself as Earl of Ross, which is a Scottish earldom that James doesn't want to acknowledge as being his. Right. So James thinks, right, well, I need to put him in his place. Yeah, and he's on a crest of a wave here. So in 1428, he summons Alexander and all his sort of great northern lords to come for a chat at a parliament at Inverness. Mm. So along they come, Alexander, his own mother, all these people come down. And as soon as they arrive, they are arrested. <laughs> if there's a theme here, you've got to be worried. <laughs> yeah. Actually, it's a bit like um, Braveheart, with the, <laughs> the beginning historically accurate scenes of them all being rounded up and hung, hanged. Mm. About 40 arrested in all, including Alexander, Lord of the Isles, and his own mother. What did she do? Just turned up. Yeah, bad news. Um, three of the leaders are executed. 
fairly summarily. Right. Um, apparently, James composes some poetry on the spot for the amusement. Oh, of, of course he does. Right. Um, now, Alexander's uncle, a chap called John Moore, James thinks, while I've got Alexander imprisoned here, mm. I can do a little bit of uh, negotiating. So he sends a messenger to John Moore and says, how about you be Lord of the Isles, forget about all this Scottish mainland business, and then we'll call it quits. And what to do with Alexander, just kill him? Yeah, or just have him imprisoned or whatever. <laughs> okay. Unfortunately, two things go a bit wrong. Firstly, John Moore refuses. Mm. And secondly, the messenger accidentally kills John Moore. <laughs> what? How? How? <laughs> he got into a fight, or he tried to arrest him, maybe, and he resisted. He got the wrong end of the stick. <laughs> Don't kill the messenger. Got rather confused. <laughs> um, so, obviously, this isn't a great diplomatic move. So James thinks, right, well, I'm going to have to try something new now. So now he releases Alexander in this little great theatrical show of mercy in hopes that he'll be a bit more loyal and behave himself. Right, okay. Which he was going to do. He was a bit chastened, Alexander. Unfortunately, John Moore has a son called Donald Ballock, who isn't so chastened. Unfortunate name. He's probably quite angry. So in 1429, um, he pushes Alexander into rebelling. They burn Inverness. They take a couple of key castles. They're fighting back against James. That is never going to work. Ballock has then got a bigger plan. He is sending some ships over to Ireland to bring James the Fat back. Oh, as king figurehead for a king right it's all looking a little bit hairy now yeah it is now thankfully james the fat dies Whee! before he ever gets a chance to go to scotland thank the boat uh james raises a very large army routes alexander's forces uh captures dingwall and urquhart castles which sort of means he's got dominance of those sort of key areas right. up in the north and then alexander is forced to come to holyrood uh submit to James, strips down to his underclothes and hands over his sword and titles. Rather like John Balliol to Edward I, Toon Tavard. Yeah. Does he get killed? He just gets put in prison. Oh, okay. I'd have killed him. Well, each to their own. <laughs> Nevertheless, 1430, um, James is looking absolutely top dog. Rock solid. He's yeah. wiped out the Albany Stuarts, who've been totally dominant before. Um, the Lord of the Isles has been forced to submit in a very humiliating mm. way after being defeated. And he's really playing a very effective diplomatic game as well. The French approach him in 1428. Charles VII now sends his magnificent embassy to try and encourage James to get back into the Hundred Years' War on France's uh, behalf. They agree a marriage between James's daughter and the Dauphin of France. Oh, wow, that is a coup. Also, they're going to give him some land. They give him some money. And in return, James is going to give them 6,000 troops. Right. He says yes to all of this, takes the money, but decides to wait a bit before going ahead with the marriage and the 6,000 troops bit. Good idea, good idea. Meanwhile, the English think, well, we don't want the King of Scots to be in with the King of France. How about, instead of marrying the Dauphin, you marry Henry VI of England? To your daughter, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is alternate history at its best. Imagine Just go that. all out on this one. See what, see how he takes it. See what he thinks. Yeah, see what he thinks. It might. The, what's the harm in their own? Yeah, I mean, crikey, how do you improve on his daughter, the man himself? And so James has got all the cards now. He stops bothering paying the ransom. Yeah. So he's been collecting all the money, but now he's just kind of using it for his own ends. Yeah. And what he's doing is making himself magnificent. So he's got these embassies coming over from France, from England, elsewhere in Europe. He's doing magnificent ceremonies, building new palaces, dressing opulently. Wow. And then also in 1430, his wife gives birth to twin sons. That is such a bumper bonus. Has that ever happened? 
In Rex Factor? Um, I'm not sure, but it is a bit of a thing, the Stuart family, actually. We have a few. Um, actually, I think oh. David II might have been the younger of a son. Unfortunately, the other twin. Unfortunately, often one of them doesn't make it. Oh, dear. But, right. Well, he's, that's, that's in medieval times, if you're a king, especially Henry VIII, you'd be thinking, <laughs> that is why you have twins. Yes. <laughs> Rather cruel. Boy but, twins. Yeah, boy <laughs> twins. Don't care about girl twins. God. So, James is looking really, really good. Mm. But not everybody's happy about it. No. His rather harsh treatment, you could argue, of his cousins yeah. and the Islesmen and other noblemen to less dramatic uh, ends means there's quite a lot of resentment. And while we might quite like this more centrist, powerful, Henry V-style kingship, mm. they're used to a more compliant, you know, one of the gang nobles. It's more of like a federalist mm. structure. And it's almost tyrannical in their eyes. Right. James is just doing what he wants and forcing them to acquiesce. Mm. We see this with taxes as well. The Scots previously didn't really have regular taxation, but James is constantly making demands on them. So right. he wasn't paying off the ransom. He took that money, didn't pay the ransom, and then when that ran out and he needed more money, he keeps... And it's all going on fancy hats. <laughs> all going on fancy hats. And as we said, uh, it, it catches up with him later in the 1430s when he's oppressed by his excessive oh, yeah. corpulence. So. Yeah. Mm, dear. Unfortunately, the Lord of the Isles issue becomes a bit of a bother again. He's got Alexander imprisoned, but Donald Balloch is still at large, yeah. and he's still a bit angry. In 1431, a small force routs the army, the royal army of the Earl of Mar in northern Scotland. A couple of quite humiliating defeats are meted out. Why did they start that off again? They're just annoyed. He's just never really stopped. He's right. just uh, angry at the settlement and the fact that their lord is in prison now, okay. and okay. his uncle was still dead. <laughs> <laughs> And as he said, James has spent all his money on palaces and furs, so yes. he's now got to go to Parliament to ask for some more, but they don't really trust him with money anymore. Mm. So they're not going to give him very much, and what they are going to give him is going to be placed in a chest given to the Bishop of St Andrews, and there will be four keys, each held by an auditor. Goodness me, that is, that's pretty humiliating, isn't it, for a king? I mean, ultimately, he doesn't have enough funds to deal with this. So the only way he can really see to deal with the unrest is once more to release Alexander, Lord of the Isles, grants him a pardon, restores his lands and titles. Oh, because they were happy to have him back and that puts yeah. its bed. Now then, the Earl of Mar had been the dominant Earl in northern Scotland, mm. but then he dies in 1435 and his son had died a few years earlier, so there's now a confusion who's going to be the next Earl of Ross who's going to be in charge up there. Mm. There aren't really any strong candidates... It's got to be the Lord of the Isles again. Oh. So the earldom that Alexander claimed right at the start of the reign that led to all of the fighting, mm. and James wouldn't let him have, mm. ultimately, he's just had to let him have it. Okay, so he, he lost that battle. He did lose that battle. But he's got another one coming. Right. The Duke of Bedford, who's kind of been regent for Henry VI, a very capable younger brother of Henry V, who's been fighting the war in France, but he dies in 1435. Mm. The French leaders reunite. The English are expelled, partly by Joan of Arc, of course. Oh, yeah. And then 1428 treaty with France and Scotland is now enacted, and Margaret is sent off to France and marries the Dauphin. Oh, he so he sees that one through? Seeing it through okay. now, and James is going to join the war against the English. I mean, it's. The, I reckon of the two choices, mm. knowing knowing that what comes afterwards, he had to do that, didn't he? It was never going to be the English. So he targets Roxburgh Castle, which is in Scotland, but it's one of two castles that the English still own in Scotland. Thanks to Edward. Uh, yeah, thanks ah. to Edward. The old Edward and Edward the Third as well. Both the Edwards. 
Um, anyway, so James leads a very large assault on uh, Roxborough. He's got special siege equipment and cannons that he's got built. The Scots never used to have this before. They used to just turn up, find a really powerful <laughs> castle, and have to go home again. James has got uh, guns. Yeah, he's he's found the trick. He has. Um, unfortunately, the Scottish leaders all fall out mm. over the chain of command. The castle resists. No. And then uh, an English army, a relief army, appears, and the Scots are forced to run away. Weren't expecting that. James goes to Parliament and wants some more money, but they've really <laughs> had it with him now. He's had all these losses faced now. The humiliation with the Lord of the Isles business, defeated in Roxbury. He's kind of lost his credibility a little uh, bit. Yeah, it's looking less magnificent. So Parliament don't give him any money. And what's more, the Speaker, a chap called Sir Robert Graham, um, not only denounces his demands, but then tries to have him arrested for misgovernment. The ki- He's trying to impeach the King, arrest mm. the King. Backfires a bit, and he is, in fact, arrested himself. Loses the head? <laughs> no, he manages to escape. Oh, Okay. Which is quite significant because there is now a conspiracy to deal with James. Oh dear. And surprisingly, the man who's at the centre of this, the figurehead, mm. is his loyal uncle, the Earl of Athol. No. Previously very close in fourteen twenty four, he was described as James's dearest uncle and closest advisor. Yeah. But he turns a little bit Richard the Third. Oh, careful. Some even <laughs> argue that he was planning this all along, that he helped engineer the death of James's brother. He then right. turns against Albany. He then turns against James. Is it all just a plan to take the throne for himself? That's quite a long-term plan. It's though. quite a long-term plan. More likely, it's the same as with Albany, that Atoll had got lots of power and influence and territories, and because James is so grasping and demanding, he's taking them away. And he's just an opportunist. And Earl of Atoll's getting on, and he's worried, and both of his sons have died in James's service. Mm. and he's worried that his grandson, Robert Stuart, won't inherit very much, because probably when the Earl of Atoll dies, James will just nick all the lands and not give it back. He is being a bit tyrannical. They're mm. right. Also, James's wife, Joan, has increasingly got a very strong influence at court. She's at his side in Parliament. She goes on royal progresses, even into enemy territory. But it's a threat to Atoll's influence. It's clearly pushing him down the pecking yeah. order a little bit. And a woman... Atoll's grandson, Sir Robert Stuart, the one he's worried about, is in a rather useful position for conspirators because he's the Chamberlain of the Royal Household. Now, what really does that mean in practice? He's got really good access to the King. He's right by the King. He's right actually there. Mm. So the conspirators, therefore, have got a man who's really basically in the room. Yeah. And Sir Robert Graham, the Speaker that tried to arrest James, had previously been in the service of the Duke of Albany. He's now in the service... Of the Earl of Atoll. Oh. So he perhaps wants vengeance against James for what he did to Murdoch and all of those yeah, chaps. Yeah. So okay. these ones all come together, and the plan seems to be to kill James and Joan, kidnap the son, and then Atoll will be in charge, rather like Albany back in the day. Right. But they've got to get um, poor old Joan because she's signed a couple of documents. And Yeah. yeah. So... James and Joan, in uh, February of 1437, are in Perth, having spent Christmas there. Um, so they're still up there in this sort of Dominican friary. James is conducting business, playing quite a lot of tennis. Really? Apparently he uh, had the drains blocked because he kept losing tennis balls because they were right by where the court was. <laughs> wow. Um, now, Robert Stewart, grandson of Atoll and the Chamberlain of the Royal Household, oh, yeah. leaves the door open so that the conspirators can get into the building. The door of the tennis court? Uh, no, just the building where they're staying. Okay, right. Building where they're staying. So they're able to get in. So we've got Sir Robert Graham and about maybe seven or eight companions that sneak in, kill a young page who was sent to get some wine by oh, James, like... and obviously causes a bit of a commotion. Mm. Now, James is sitting with Joan and her ladies when they hear the noise of this. 
So they obviously realise that something is afoot. So James gets a poker, rips open the floorboards where they are, and jumps down into the drains, and then they cover it up again so that James is safe and able to escape. That's amazing. James does that himself. I have to say, if I were trying to escape, I wouldn't think of going through the floor. That's that's Well, because the sewers are below him, and of course they will lead out, and he'll be able to escape. Through, like like in the... um, What's that film? The man goes... uh, Shawshank Redemption. Thank you. (laughs) Or rather, James would be able to escape if he hadn't ordered that the drains be blocked to stop his tennis balls getting no out. No way. I thought you were going to say I was too fat. <laughs> too fat. Well, he is too fat because there are some bars in the way. Oh, tennis balls. It's, oh, that's... So what, now he's, now he's now covered he's, in poo <laughs> yes. and stuck by his own uh, laziness. But the floorboards have been replaced and the men are going to try and come in. According to legend, uh, Joan Beaufort's lady-in-waiting, Kate Douglas, jammed her arm into the door because there was a wood beam that was missing that was you know, meant to keep mm. the door closed. So she just jammed it in there while they're bashing on the door, and eventually they pushed through, breaking her arm in the process, but she delayed to give James the chance to That's get down there. What a picture this paints. So they come in, but there's no sign of James. No, he's um, wallowing around in poo, isn't hmm. he? But yeah. they don't know that. No. Look around, I think, well, he's not there. Yeah. And off they pop. It worked. But then one of the men remembers that he knows this room and he's like, hang on, I'm pretty sure there's a sewer underneath this room. So they come back. <laughs> dig up the floorboards. <laughs> oh, brilliant. And then there's James down below. Looking quite sorry for himself, mm. covered in tennis balls and feces. So they've got him. He's trapped. In my mind, he looks like one of those uh, one of those people that we have to put on the suits and cover yourselves in little tennis, table tennis balls to, to animate something, <laughs> yeah. you know, on a computer. So, a man jumps in to deal with James, but then he is caught by the king, who with great violence cast him under his feet. Cast him under, he sits on him? Um, or maybe hits him and just okay. knocks him down. All right, yeah. Another chap comes in afterwards, but he is also seized by James, whose oh. hands are now completely bloody from, you know, he's parrying... Knife wow. wounds and all sort of stuff, but he's fighting for his life God. under the drains. Yes. Wow, in finest clothes, yes. all fat, but he's <laughs> right at the end. This is the end game. Yeah, he is properly fighting with his back against the wall. Finally, Sir Robert Graham comes down with his sword drawn, and James asks him for mercy, or a confessor, but is told by Graham, Thou shalt never have other confessor but this same sword. And he runs him through, and then they all rush in. And stabby, stabby. Stabby, stabby, stabby. I imagine him, his face, when Graham, Lord Graham pops down and goes, You! <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, yeah, that conversation, I'd have loved to have heard that. So on the 21st of February, 1437, James I is killed. And he's found with only 16 wounds on his body. Mm. I reckon that's the second best death we've had. It's quite dramatic, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, obviously, nothing will ever touch um, <laughs> Statue Gate. Mm. But... That's really, really nasty. I mean, he's the first Scottish king to be murdered since the 1090s. Really? So remember, it used to happen all the time, but it's actually been hundreds of years now since the Scottish king's been murdered. Wow, I sort of presume that's how they all go now. Yeah. Wow, that is, that's interesting. So that is the life and reign of uh, James I. Let's see how he stacks up when we review him. Battleliness! So, got a little bit to talk about here. It's a tale of two halves, though, this one, isn't it? Mm. 
But he does have that pretty decent one with uh, the Lord of the Isles, 1428-30, to 30, when he initially defeats Alexander. Yeah. For this one, when he called a general council to raise money and up for an army, he did meet resistance, but with the help of, at that point, the loyal uncle, mm. Atoll, and the Earl of Mar, they did support his position. But James left them all in absolutely no doubt about what was going to happen. Mm. I shall go and see whether they have fulfilled the required service. I shall go, I say, and I will not return while they default. I will chain them so that they are unable to stand and lie beneath my feet. Ooh, okay. I mean, you can see this tyrant aspect of his character. Mm. Mm. But as a man who's king and in charge, it's quite yes, strong, yeah, quite forceful. Yeah. Um, and, of course, his own assassination. I mean, yes, he was assassinated, <laughs> but he goes down fighting. Yeah, he certainly does. He certainly does. It's... It trouble is mm. at the start. I'm picturing a um, Henry Mark V with a kilt on. Yeah. And by the end, I've got a fat Henry the Fourth with a pincushion hat, <laughs> sort of just holding his hands up to blades that are raining down on him. Mm. Tricky. Yeah. I mean, the downside, of course, when the Lord of the Isles stuff in 1431. So not actually that much after he had his triumph. Mm. The army under Mar gets routed by a small force. Now James yeah. isn't there. It's not really his fault. Mm. But because his prestige had been based on the victory, he then loses prestige yeah. with his defeat. Struggles to get money from Parliament and he ends up having to just give Alexander the Lord of the Isles his freedom and everything he wanted anyway. Yeah, what a waste. I mean, that will be reflected in subjectivity, but what a waste. I, mean, I suppose the positive is that actually Alexander, through all this um, berating, was actually quite chastened. So when he does get released, he doesn't really cause James too many problems. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. We didn't follow that up. He, so we at least had that. Because he'd done the whole um, getting down to his pants yeah. business. <laughs> yeah, and he'd then been in prison for a while. Yeah. So he does come out and think, I'm just not going to bother Can't with this bother. anymore. Just well, and he got what he Sky's wanted. Sky's lovely. Let's just yeah. stay there. Got what I wanted. Mm. On the islands. Happy days. Exactly. So maybe that's a victory of sorts. Yeah, but he actually pacified it. Like, there was mm. no more trouble. He's still king of those islands. Mm. Mm. That's but interesting. Is that good battliness or is it more subjectivity where battliness failed? Yeah. Yeah, I, it depends where you rate these things. Yeah, we'd have to take stuff. one away from the other. Mm. Mm. Definite failure was his attempt to take Roxburgh Castle. Mm. Um, apparently in 1430 he spent £600 on siege engines, the most notable being a large cannon which bore the inscription For the illustrious James, worthy Prince of Scots, magnificent king, when I sound off, I reduce castles. I was made at his order, therefore I am called Lion. Nice. He can't even resist a bit of poetry on his <laughs> cannon. Um, now, he had two options for which one to go for. He could either go for Roxburgh or for Berwick, as the two Scots yeah. castles in English house. Now, Berwick really might have been a better choice, because the garrison was quite close to mutiny, and it wasn't being terribly well defended, whereas Roxburgh, the soldiers had all been paid off recently. Right. It is pretty well defended, and uh, it's also quite a natural fortress anyway. Mm. It's quite a strong position. So to try and capture that in just two weeks was probably unrealistic. Yeah. Particularly when instead of the veteran border lords, like the fifth uh, Earl Douglas, or Earl of Angus, he chooses his younger cousin and later murderer, Sir Robert Stuart, to be in charge. God, that's a good point. Later murderer. Mm. Wow. And this caused a lot of divisions among Douglas and Angus mm. and Robert and the King. So they're all kind of at loggerheads, so it's not a very effective siege anyway. And then, of course, they're forced to flee an English relief force without achieving anything. That's the main trouble with 
the whole Scottish histories <laughs> is this infighting. Yeah. Oh, um, perhaps even more humiliatingly, according to Walter Bauer, the Queen unexpectedly arrived, told him about that, saying, oh, they're all murmuring about plots and stuff, I think you should head home, and led the King from the army. The so, suggestion being that whilst they're all having a bit of a shout and an argument, Joan pops up and says, I don't think you can trust these guys, it's not safe, we better leave. So not only are the Scots fleeing from the English, but there's even a suggestion that James is kind of fleeing from the Scots. Wow. So he's at the front. Yeah, and they're just yeah. all running away. That's terrible. Now, we've also got the weird thing of Scotland fighting in France. That is super weird. Because usually we credit, you know, when they're imprisoned or when it's a regency, mm. we give them credit for things that happened during their reign. Yeah. But James is in France with the King of England against is the that, Scots. It's so strange. Which is really unfortunate for James, because um, the Battle of Bourget in 1421, the Earl of uh, Buchan wins really great victory against the English, uh, kills the Duke of Clarence, one of the brothers of Henry V, and it's the first time that the English have been defeated since Henry V invaded. And it's the wow. Scots that achieved this. The Scots that achieved So they really were. I mean, it's not just... Because we're focusing on the Scots, they really were a force to reckon with. They, even just those mm. 6,000 men. We can't give... It's so weird, isn't it? We can't give him points for a magnificent Scottish battle. Yeah. My my conker's all twisted about that. Because he was on the other side saying, no, go back, stop, yeah, stop, yeah. stop killing them. <laughs> oh, dear. Poor James. So it's a funny one. He kind of... There's a sense of power and strength to him, but mm. it kind of... it doesn't always work out in the end. Well, it certainly didn't, did it? I mean, when he's shuttling backwards and forwards, selling off his daughter, you, I thought this is going one way. Mm. Um, but unfortunately, that way ended up uh, in a sewer covered in tennis balls and wounds. Yes. And poo. Not good, really. So what about a score, then, for battliness? I, um, I can't give him very good score of battliness. I think his achievements were done di- diplomatically, like in one swoop arresting people. It wasn't on a battlefield. Um, and the big reversal of the Lord of the Isles. He joins the Order of the Garter. That's pretty cool. And there's the Siege of France that he did. He, yeah, he led. did a little bit of sieging in France against the Scots. but against Well, maybe the, against them. Oh, been in France. I'm not sure if the Scots were there. he was on the other side. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can't really see more than two or three. Two. I do feel conflicted, because like you said, it's, there is ultimately a lot of non-success, mm. and then he dies in a, di- in, in a drain, rather ignominiously. But I don't know, it's weird, I feel like he's probably better at it than yes, seems when, apparent. When I was pausing then, it was because I was looking around for the for the bit of good battliness that I sort of assumed in my head. Mm. And it, his... He does have a successful campaign against the Lord of the Isles, when he is kind of in charge. Yeah, It's he, his own people, though, isn't it? He buys a Canon, okay, it didn't work, but you know, yeah, they hadn't yeah. done it before. I think it's one of those where, like, if he hadn't been assassinated and he'd ruled for another 20 odd years, I don't feel like we would have had another David II and just a series of embarrassing no. humiliations. I feel like the pendulum would have swung back in his favor and he would have had some wins. Yeah, it almost seems like he just kind of got cut off just at the bad. Moment. And also, maybe if he, even if there were, if the pendulum swung the other way through again through diplomacy as he'd as he'd achieved at the start of his reign, we might have seen this battliness more positively. But because it's on the end of quite a, mm. you know, you know, we're not far end. away from the Wars of the Roses in England. Yeah, he would have been of an age. He might still have been around. He could have taken advantage of that, perhaps. True. 
but he didn't get the chance because he got assassinated after yeah. his defeats. So yeah. I'm I'm going to give him a three and a half. Okay. I feel like it's weird. I feel like he deserves more than that, and yet when you look at his just can't give it to record. Him. Yeah. Mm. What were you? Were you two? I was, I'm going two. Yeah. Yeah. So that's five and a half for Battleiness. Scandal. There's there's almost a sort of Game of Thronesiness to James and some of his shenanigans, where you think this plotting at court with Murdoch, mm. the Lord of the Isles, his mm. own downfall ultimately. Executing the entire wing of his family, getting vengeance for the death of his own brother years before. Yeah. It's particularly notable because it's been, I don't think since like 1320s, since a Scottish noble's been executed. We're, so the, we've actually had a long period of stable succession and relative peace without nobles being assassinated. Though. Yeah, it's been a long time since we've had the Scottish king murdering people. <laughs> And a lot of people felt this may be unexpected. There was a sense that, yes, maybe he's going to sort of remove them from power and stuff, but actually it was a pretty ruthless mm. display yeah. by James. Similarly with the Lord of the Isles and all his friends and his mother. Oh, yeah. The tricky pulls a few times where he invites yeah. people over for tea and then just arrests them. Yeah, you'd think they'd get wise to that. But given his battleiness score, he's aware that that's his only way of doing it. Mm. His black humour, sending Walter Stewart off to the Bass Rock where he himself yes. had been stranded. Yeah. And then his little poetry when he invites... Um, he's saying, Let us take the chance to conduct this company to the tower with care, for by Christ's death, these men deserve death. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. On the downside, mm. I'm afraid, he seems to have had a very close relationship with his wife. No mistresses, neither in England nor Scotland. Uh, these kings need to learn that if you're going to let it down on battliness, you really have to up the scandal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, there's that debate with all of this ruthless stuff. Is it scandalous or is it also kind of just a bit tyrannical, bad subjectivity? Is it making you think? Uh, I feel like it's leaning towards more subjectivity because this sort of, yeah, just arresting people and... Killing them. Um, oh, no, but then when I say it out loud, it is a bit scandalous, isn't it? It's if There's something there. It's a bit like battliness. I feel like there's something there that I can't yeah. quite pin down. Hmm. And if he's not if he's not got any mistresses, he's not really trying hard enough for me yeah. to give him a massive score. I'll give him more than battliness, though. Mm -hmm. so I'll, go, I'll match you on, on uh, battliness three and a half. I suppose I'm imagining this being portrayed in a sort of gory HBO series and thinking mm. there are quite a lot of good dark scenes that James is providing, quite a lot of mm. sort of evil moments and twists and things you're not expecting. It certainly wouldn't make a great HBO series. And the lovely bit of poetic license with him coming to the end with yeah. his own sort of <laughs> yeah, dark and yeah. devious misdeeds. And I imagine each episode starting with a piece of his crap poetry <laughs> and fading into the background and he gets more and more fat. Uh, so I'm going to give him a four for Scandal. Okay. Uh, like you said, it feels like it should be more, but somehow he's just not quite mm. done it. Mm. Anyway, it's a better score, so it's a seven and a half for Scandal. Subjectivity. Now, we do have quite a lot to say here. Now, we've been talking about all of the negative things that he's been doing, the more tyrannical element, but we've mm. forgotten about some of his more positive qualities. When he was flush. When he was flush, and he was a Renaissance man. Mm. Excellent education in England, unusually cultured, much more so than any of his predecessors, mm. as King of Scots. And Walter Bower, the author of the Scotty Chronicon, mm. that we've enjoyed many a time, mm. we're actually contemporary with him now. He actually knows James I personally. He serves really? him. 
at court. Oh, so does this mean it's the end of the Scotty Conicon? Not quite. He survives, James. Okay. Um, but nevertheless, he, he actually really knows James, so we've perhaps got a better insight into James than we've he's had for any a, previous... He's going to make some of it up, though, isn't he? Please? Well, I mean, he's certainly giving us a lot of uh, praise. Apparently he wrote 11 chapters on how amazing James was. <laughs> was he paid by him? By well, this is after he died. Okay. Uh, Walter seems to be a bit upset about it. So, oh. sport is one of James's many talents. Mm. He would challenge any of the magnates of any size to wrestle with him. <laughs> I bet he would. He was the best of archers and a knowledgeable jouster. He could sling a stone and throw a hammer further than the usual standard of men. He was a very fast runner, as if with wings on his feet. A most energetic rider and traveller. He sounds like an utter pain. Can you imagine if he went around to visit? He says, come on, let's race. Let's do a race. Let's do a... Also, a knowledgeable jouster. Is that a little dig? I don't know. It seems like it's not... If you're going to describe the best jouster in the world, knowledgeable is not the first sort of yeah. attribute for the jouster. You'd like, assume They need that. to know their craft. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But that Usain Bolt, you know, he knows an awful lot about running. He has got the theory of how to run fast <laughs> yeah, down. Yeah, ask him any question. Don't ask him to show you. <laughs> ask him to tell you. He's also a musician. This man indeed was a great musician, not only in singing, but also in a high standard of performance on the drum, for example. <laughs> the one drum. <laughs> <laughs> listen to this, listen to this. Very good, James. Put it down. Let's have a race. And the fiddle. Mm. On the psaltery and organ, the flute and lyre, the trumpet and pipe, certainly not as an enthusiastic amateur, but attaining the highest degree of mastery. I, he's just listed all the instruments that are available to him at the time, and they. Yeah. Yeah, he's got very varied interests. He applied himself with eagerness sometimes to the art of literary composition and writing, sometimes to drawing and painting, sometimes to herb gardens and to planting and grafting of fruit trees. Um, and there's sort of a love of knowledge, like we saw with the poem he founds the University of St Andrews in 1413, oh, wow. and apparently attended a few lectures. Okay. But of course, the biggie for him in culture is his poetry. Oh. <laughs> Particularly the Kingis Quare, the poem he writes about uh, Joan Beaufort and his basically his life story up yeah. to that point, is the first evidence of such a personal document from a Scottish king. You think the idea of having poetry from all of the ones we've had before just seems completely... True. Way yeah, off, and suddenly now we've actually got him expressing his feelings. In yeah, wandering through groves of honeysuckle. 119 seven-line stanzas <laughs> in Chaucerian rhyme, <laughs> and he indeed dedicates it to Chaucer and uh, another poet, John Gower. Yeah, right. yeah, so it's not necessarily a great piece of work, mm. but, you know, we do get quite a lot of interesting things in it. We get him, you know, talking about his life story, his imprisonment, how glum and sad he's feeling. Yeah, first-hand, I suppose, that's quite interesting. We've also got him talking about how he went to read uh, Boethius's Consolations of Philosophy, which, mm. again, tells us that, you know, he's reading works of philosophy. Yeah. Which, again, we maybe don't know if previous Scots have done this. Yeah, yeah. And also, of course, we've got the lovely romance with Joan. Mm. Do you want to hear a little bit of that? No. And therewith kest I doon mine eye again, qua as I saw, walking under the tour, full secretly new come in here to play, the fairest or the freshest young fleur that ever I saw, methought before that o'er, the blood of all my body to my heart. At least it went to his heart. <sighs> it's mean, interesting, though, that it's in Scots. I was going to say, I understood very, very little of that. So mm. even though he's not been in Scotland for a while, he's still obviously mm. thinking and writing in Scottish. 
So he's a man of many talents. Yeah. But perhaps his main talent when he actually becomes king, and he kind of forgets about all of this stuff, <laughs> is uh, in being a strong monarch. Mm. And it's almost a sort of new monarchy, a new style of monarchy for Scotland. Because if we recall all our previous ones, we've had this century of weak monarchs who are barely more than just the first noble. Yeah. And often there's somebody else who's really pulling the power strings. We've yeah. had Albany, Douglas, Marr, determining warfare, foreign policy. And he, people are quite happy to follow that person. There doesn't seem to be any mm. problem with it switching. For James, he follows the Henry V mark of kingship. So he removes Albany, he subdues the Lord of the Isles, all these other realms, brings them to heel. He takes earldoms for himself. Customs, duties and taxes are going into his personal control. And he is completely calling the shots on diplomacy, on warfare mm. and all this sort of stuff. James is at the centre and is in control. But also goes some way to explaining his downfall if people are really used to that's the unfortunate mm. thing we've got royal majesty which we've yeah. not really had very much of with the scots before he wants to display his power and status to everybody so it's not just the rail politic it's also mm. the propaganda element as well he's buying jewels furs silks and satin cloths from europe he gets an ostrich feather to go in the headdress mm. of joan and buys himself a couple of jeweled collars I bet he wish he'd kept the receipt for a lot of this stuff. <laughs> European embassies coming over and given magnificent welcomes by James, particularly in some of his palaces, such as Linlithgow. Mm. From 1428 to 34, he spends about £5,000 changing this old manor that had burnt down into this grand Renaissance palace. Wow. Apparently spent over one-tenth of his annual income just building this one thing. It's like a mortgage today yeah there's no mention there of religion we haven't actually had much of that now he does have faith so he apparently establishes a carthusian priory in perth which is the first new religious order for quite a long time a few centuries Hmm. and it's a bit more rigorous and back to basics and i wouldn't have expected that from him um he also has a lot of control over the church Hmm. um he orders all religious houses to offer prayers to him and his family (laughs) And fines if they're found not to be doing it. Easy, yeah. Um, he lamented that David I was no saint to the crown because he'd given up so much land and bequests to the church that used to uh, be in royal control. So okay. James is like, all this money I should have if you only yeah. given it all away. Um, he's determined to assert royal control, so he bars churchmen from travelling to Rome to seek new sees without approval. Comes into conflict with the papacy when they demand that he let some of the bishops get summoned to come over and deal with stuff, but he stands his ground. And it's a little bit of Henry VIII going on here. Definitely you know, he's thinking, I should have all this church money. No one's going yeah. over there. I should be lord of my dominion. Yeah, tyrannical. Yeah. <laughs> and we've got some pretty decent attempts at governance from James. When he becomes king and is crowned, his coronation oath, he says that if God give me life, though it be but the life of a dog, then throughout all Scotland with his help, will I make the key keep the castle and the bracken bush the cow. Don't understand that at all. I'm going to make sure that law and order prevails. Right. Um, He holds ten parliaments and three general councils in his personal reign. Uh, how long? Oh, we'll find out how long. Find out, but that's pretty regular. Okay. Um, extensive record of laws enacted, all sorts of things that James is making rules about. There's regular trade and sort of agriculture stuff going on. He's making sure laws are adopted universally across Scotland, rather than allowing these sort of mini fiefdoms where mm. they do their own thing with their own customs, particularly in the Highlands. That's good. Um, and he creates a new court, which lays the foundation for what's uh, became the Court of Session, which is Scotland's oldest, uh, still going. Court. <laughs> I suppose um, this is impressive. Mm. And something I have never asked in Rex Factor before mm. is maybe these things are considered more impressive if they last. Do these last? Are they things that we 
still... So as Walter Bauer says, and Walter Bauer is a fan of James, he issued various different statutes, some of which would have served the kingdom well enough for the future if they had been kept. So he's saying that people didn't keep to them? Mm. Not the next king got rid of them? No, that it's... I guess they probably have to reenact the laws again because they've not necessarily happened. Right. But he also has a go at finances away from the law. He improves trade with Europe, agreeing agreeing trade deals with the Flemish merchants and a 100-year commercial treaty with Duke Philip of Burgundy. And apart from the blips with the Lord of the Isles, we do essentially have Scotland at peace throughout the reign. Yeah. I mean, it's only the Lord of the Isles that... uh, and then his the rest of his family kick off, but that's mm. the flashpoint, isn't it? It's yeah. not like we're talking about Murray again or anything. It's fairly okay, mm. you know, from that perspective. I think that's the that's the gist of the whole thing, though, isn't it? It's fairly okay. okay. On the downside, mm. if we go back to the finances, he did struggle to keep the crown afloat. So apparently, he raised twenty six thousand pounds for the ransom and only bothered to pay twelve thousand of it actually back. So he got fourteen thousand pounds to himself, but obviously just spent it. <laughs> Um, he takes lots of money from customs dues, but these are tailing off by the 1430s. He uh, Crown lands are responsible for quite a lot of his extra income, but that's just from where he's taking it from, like, Murdoch right. and others. Mm. So he's kind of relying on lands that he's taken back rather than having found a new way of funding the Crown. Yes. So it's not... Un- it's not sustainable. Not sustainable. Um, and actually, when he dies, ordinary Crown income level still isn't at the levels that it was at under David II. Wow. That's damning. I mean, that's not his fault in the sense that it had gone down a lot prior to that, but he hasn't been able to get it back. Yeah, surely Yeah, that's the aim, growth. And actually, his constant attempts at taxing everybody, appropriating money, mean that there's a lot of opposition shored up for future Stuart mm. monarchs, where the nobility is like, no, we're not doing these taxes, and we know what happens when we do this, we're not agreeing yeah. to it. So it's a lot harder for his successors to get these things agreed okay. as a result. Now, you're asking about the legislation. Arguably, a lot of these laws are actually more about reenacting old laws than they are oh, right. completely new things that he's invented himself. Right. And it's not just law and order. There's lots of stuff that suggests he's maybe being a bit too controlling. Right. So, you know, he's taking action against begging, fishing out of season, even playing football. What? He doesn't want people playing football. You get fined if you play football. <laughs> it was the one sport he wasn't good at. He said, have a <laughs> yeah. race instead. No, nobody yeah. does it. Yeah, let, let me play my drum. And, of mm. course, he is a little bit tyrannical. Yeah, a little. We saw what he did with Albany, what he does with the Lord of the Isles, seeing how he's keeping all of the taxation. And he's not massively popular. Walter Bauer says the populace were complaining that they were being impoverished by such taxes and began to mutter mm. against the king. When Margaret marries, uh, his daughter marries the Dauphin, uh, Bauer related how uh, James decided against imposing taxes on the kingdom and instead approaches individuals who gave contributions cheerfully and happily, without the need for any compulsion. Oh, right, yeah. In theory, he should have known about this, because he was the one collecting the money. Mm. In reality, I don't think it was that voluntary. (laughs) Yeah. Pope Pius II likened him to a new pharaoh oppressing the church and his people, being passionate, greedy and vindictive. Fair. Oh, that's a strange... Well, because of the church conflict, Okay. I guess. Mm. And then, uh, yeah, even Bauer is forced to admit that his qualities were appreciated but slightly at the time. Moves, <laughs> they were appreciated slightly. He's very but knowledgeable. That's, he is the master of the backhanded... Uh, compl- uh, not even compliment, just... Mm. And, ah. as, and as you said, ultimately a lot of these methods result in his own downfall. Yeah. So, it's again, it's a funny one where he's got a lot of very positive qualities... 
And a lot of stuff that he's doing, we're thinking, oh, yeah, this is the right sort of thing to do. And if you were to imagine when we were in the David II episode, Robert II, Robert III, mm. and I were to tell you about all the ways in which James is taking control, mm. sorting out, he's the king in charge, no more of this nonsense with Albany and people yeah. being governors. I'm the king, I'm powerful. Yes, it would have seemed very good. And then also, I think if you were to say this in like a hundred years, um, mm. and, and not a spoiler alert, but it would seem very impressive too, but because it, I imagine it, people are more used to, we're getting into the time of absolute monarchies of the Tudors and everything, it mm. seemed more normal to have this um, power, this centralised power. Mm. But it just wasn't right at the time, some of it just misses. But then is he just a victim of the fact that there was an unexpected assassination, which I say is out of the norm? Mm. Without that, he could be there for longer, much longer potentially. He's only in his early 40s. I mean, I know that's quite a big if to say if he hadn't been assassinated and overthrown is kind of the mm, point, yeah. you could argue. Yeah. But, you know, if he's there for that much longer, it's much more established and he's really ingrained this new style of monarchy that's much stronger and much more powerful we saw the way that he was really at the centre of European diplomacy playing yep. people off against each other he's just had a bad little run and then gets executed just so, at the wrong yeah. time, he's kind of at his lowest ebb although it is at a time when the the whole yes he's at a low ebb but his the final move in that game of chess was peace in that Alexander's restored mm. shore, but there is peace. But it hasn't reflected well, and he's killed. Mm. But yeah, maybe there's something there, because if he had survived the sewer, then um, then you're just... He's sitting pretty, really. Mm. Everything's peaceful again. He just needs to build and build and build. But yeah, it is an if. I, mm. It's just a not quite. Mm. But it is surely better than what we've had for quite a long time. Yeah. I'm struggling. I just again, I'm looking for the the biggie. Mm. I'm looking for the big battle. I was looking for the big scandal and looking for the big subjectivity. And the only thing that screams at me is that really he gets overthrown, and it's a bit unstable because that is rare these days. Mm. Um, but there's all the stuff in the background. Again, I'm going to go up a point, mm. so I'll go to four point five. Not even a bit more for the poetry. The poetry, Graham, <laughs> is that exact half point. That's why that's lost. I would love to do a, a Rex Factor special on the First World War, but I fear we'd get <laughs> we'd get lost in poetry. <sighs> yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I've sort of I want to give him more credit. I think for that, it's such an improvement on David the Second, Robert the Second, Robert the Third. And let's not forget his father, the last man who was king, yeah. his younger brother was ruling in place of him. And his epitaph, his own epitaph, was bury me in a dunghill. Here lies the worst of kings and the most miserable of men. I've forgotten that's about that. That's what James is following. Yeah, that's true. And it's so much more energy and direction and things that he's doing. And it's it's timing and it's the unfortunate thing of, you know, being stabbed to death in a sewer. Well, there's the horrible irony that he was buried in a dunghill, really. <laughs> <laughs> they got the wrong man. Oh, dear. There's a bit in which thinks the tyranny bit, we're only coming into this because of the fact that he comes unstuck. Whereas mm. otherwise, if he'd been there for 40 years, we'd have just thought that's good, strong kinging. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. you know, we could say that about Edward I, obviously, or yeah, Henry II, definitely. or any strong medieval king yeah. is really a tyrant. 
when they're establishing themselves, yeah, yeah, until people get used to this. And if it was in 1430 that somebody had given the stabby stab to James, mm. just as his sons had been born, we'd have thought, oh no, this was they're what right, we've been waiting yeah. for for so yeah. long. Yeah, it just has a bad little spell. So I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be a bit more generous, but equally, like you said, there isn't anything big there that we can really put a wreath around and say, yes, this is what he's done. Brilliant. Yeah, I'm gonna give him a six. Okay, so where does that leave him? That gives him a ten and a half for subjectivity. Okay. He's moving up each time. Each time, yes. Uh, see if he does better on our longevity. Mm. Longevity. So he is king from the 4th of April, 1406, to the 21st of February, 1437. Just 30.83 years. And if we put that into the Frangipani calculator, what do we call it these days? Uh, ediometer. Ediometer. Uh, then that's 15 out of 20. Oh, that is really very good. He is getting better. Mm. Of course, he wasn't actually in Scotland being king for all of that, but... Good point. First 18 years, but nevertheless... Good point. Dynasty, not the programme. He has seven surviving children. He's getting better and with better. With Joan Beaufort. Um, he actually had eight, but I said the eldest of the twins' sons Aww. died in infancy. But nevertheless, it's clearly a close marriage. Um, apparently Margaret, his firstborn, the daughter, was born in Christmas 1424, mm. and given that they'd married in, what was it, February or March or something... Oh, <laughs> right. But yeah, so seven children, 14 out of 20. Very good. And that gives him a total score of 52.5. And uh, where's he ranked then that's, so far? That's pretty good, actually. So as a total score, ninth place. So Ninth place so far. So obviously mm. that can shift, but yeah, I suppose that's sort of fair, mm. isn't it? It's just nothing to write home about with him. There's if if you'd say to him, what have you been up to? And just go, meh. The standout thing of his reign is getting slaughtered in a sewer. I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? If he's kind of at the gates, the Rex at the gates saying, let me in, you say, well, what's the big thing you can tell us about? He's like, you've got to hear about how I got killed. Yeah, exactly. It's amazing. Yeah, exactly. You were like, oh, who would turn up to the pearly gates as they do in films, uh, you know, as he was killed in the same clothes and everything, and he'd be covered in poo and tennis balls, lots of stab wounds, and St. Peter would go, oh, yeah! <laughs> and that would be the only thing he's known for in heaven or hell. But, nevertheless, <laughs> does he have that certain something, that lasting legacy, that great achievement, the star quality that we call... Rex Factor! The interesting thing with James, I think, is that he's maybe the first Scot possibly that we've had at all, who is... We, they've usually been a Rex Factor winner or completely hopeless. Yeah, that's really true. James is not completely hopeless. No. And he definitely had a lot of qualities and early promise yeah. that was potentially Rex Factor worthy. And I, for that reason, I found it a very fast turnaround from him being... Um, I can't remember how many years are involved here, but from him wooing the different uh, monarchs of uh, Europe, mm. not literally, but you know, yeah. he was commanding <laughs> that well, we don't know, mm. um, uh, to all of a sudden everyone deciding he was no good and then killing him. Mm. I feel like if I were those people, because we've had either such rubbish mm. or, you know, Rex, you want to sort of just give him a chance. Yeah, give him let's, a bit just, of, let's play out. Yeah. 
And I feel it just didn't get to play out. Like, if we think of, like, a Henry II or an Edward I, there are definitely spells in their reigns when things were going a bit pear-shaped. Yeah. And if someone had just stabbed them at that point, you'd have yeah. thought, well, it didn't go very well, ultimately did it. Yeah. But then they were able to recover and do something else impressive. But unfortunately... James doesn't get the chance to show what he might have done. Yeah, and he does get the stabby. Mm. And that's all we've got to get the stabby. <laughs> and that's all we've got. Um... I just feel like, feel well, clearly it's a no for me, but I feel like he may be, I don't know why I'm coming around to him, maybe we could give him a little medal. <laughs> like, oh. a, a pretty average all right bloke should have should have been given a chance. Yeah, I feel like, I think it's because the reason we're coming around to him is because I think he, he could have got it. Yeah. And he could definitely, like, where we left him in 1430, you would have been thinking, well, this is going to be a Rex Factor winner. Yeah. And if if he, I know it's strange we're doing so many ifs in this episode, <laughs> but the the coming years, what we know happens in the territory surrounding him, mm. if he could have taken full advantage of that, he really could have. That's when the you know he would have had his chance to yeah. think right. Well, now the dice is rolled and it's back in my court again. Yeah, he'd be rolling in hats. Mm. And the other thing, I suppose, also is that it's not like the ent- it's not Julius Caesar. It's not the entirety of the Scottish court that's assassinated him. Mm. It's a small little bit, mm. and as I say, it's very uncertain as to what's going to happen next. Of course, we've li- we're leaving it on something of a cliffhanger. Where well, is Joan? Where is the son? Who's going to be in control now? Is Attle going to be king? What's going to happen? But ultimately, he didn't get that chance. It didn't all happen. Maybe he might have done. But he didn't. But he didn't. It's got to be a no for me as well. Well, there we are. Bad luck, James the First. You had promise, but didn't quite manage to mm. see it through. Much like his promises to the kings of England and France. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so that's it for James the First. He doesn't have the Rex Factor, but if you disagree, then uh, let us know. You can contact us on Twitter at Rex Factor Pod. Like us on Facebook, email rexfactorpodcast.hotmail.com, read the blogs and complete the polls on WordPress, and you can also now follow us on Instagram. Ooh. Again, we are at rexfactorpod. I'll have to take a little picture of Ali sitting down just to prove that we're now back in our normal studio. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, then you are, of course, very welcome to do so. If you leave a review and subscribe on iTunes, that very, can help us yeah. to be noticed and people see us and mm. check us out. Um, if you'd like to make a donation to the podcast, then that would be incredibly lovely of you. Oh, yes. Uh, you can do a one-off donation on PayPal, such as Bill PP has done recently. No. Thank you to Bill. Thanks, Bill. Uh, you can also do a crowdfunding where you do a monthly donation, in return for which you get uh, different rewards based on how much you donate, and you get to join the esteemed Privy Council. And Privy Councillors, we are going to be re- recording your special post-podcast episode in about five minutes, I guess. Yeah, so all Privy Councillors get to listen to a special bonus recording we do after each of these normal yeah. podcasts, where we chat a little bit more about the episode, maybe yeah. some bits that didn't make the cut messages that get left and whatnot um but also if you do one dollar a month you get a mention on the podcast two dollars a month you get comment read out mm. five dollars a month you get access to all of our special episodes which usually we sell for two dollars mm. and uh we've recently released a special episode on Boudicca. yes free sample available available on wordpress now exactly um ten dollars a month you get a mug Privy Councillor Mug, $15 a month you get to commission a blog on the subject of your choice, and for $25 a month you get to commission a special episode on the subject of your choice. And a t-shirt. Just been playing around with the designs today. Mm. 
And we've got numerous people to thank for becoming Privy Councillors. So, Ali, prepare to welcome them into the chamber. Okay. Jackie Reuter, Cass 1745, <laughs> Ed Williams, Arakai Hart, Felix Mansbridge, Flaminka, Bjorn Havsoga, Crafty Moo, Larvkin, Hey Mitch McKay, John Rent, Susan Duke, Cho Watson Clark, Tom Malander, Kelkers, Shellfish Jar, C. Scrace, Catherine Lloyd, Rhett Say, Joseph Maltby, David Pitchler, Christy Stever, and Eric Lopez. Arise, sirs and ladies, one and all. Um, I have to say, I absolutely love it when they sort of have a handle instead of their real name. It really <laughs> makes me laugh. Uh, thank you very much to all of those people and there are quite a few others we haven't had chance to thank yet so we'll do that in uh, future episodes mm. and of course our exciting new project with Tim Mouse Animation we're hoping to do a, a cartoon version of Rex Factor Yeah. starting with uh, Richard III it's going to be very very exciting they are so talented I've seen some of the rushes I believe mm. they're called and it's it's brilliant if you go to rexfactor-theanimatedshow.co.uk you can watch a trailer see some of the artwork that they've done mm. and if you sign up for updates you get some newsletters with some chat from Ali yep. and from Tom from Tim Mouse Animation you also get to download some uh, digital extras such as a uh, dashboard uh, dashboards uh, uh, they are called that desktop desktops desktop images for your computer or for your phone yeah and uh, I was chatting to Tom of Tin Mouse Animation Google that. check them out on yeah. uh, the internet <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, I'm not sure if you've heard of the internet it's a uh, uh, um, and he has lots of treats lined up for you. If you give him your email through that website, you'll get little clips of what they've been working on. Loads of little Easter eggs. It's all very exciting. Now, some messages. Yes. Melita Pendergast sends us an email on the dynastic characteristics. Okay. Not at all surprising, in reference to uh, Robert II, that our very first Stuart monarch appeared on the heritage playing card in a dress starting that brilliant Stuart family tradition of wearing costumes. I would have to say that dressing up was one of the defining features of the Stuart dynasty. I wonder if you had to pick out three defining characteristics of various English and Scottish dynasties, what they would be. For example, the Saxons for me would be blinding, mud and crazy bishops. So pleased you said mud. I'm less keen on the bishops. <laughs> blinding, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, the McAlpin dynasty. Mm-hmm. Hall burning. Brothers. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, what else we got? Hashtag remember Ieth. Hashtag remember Ieth, yeah, yeah, that'll do. But yeah, if you've got any uh, ideas for those, let yeah. us know on Twitter, Facebook, etc. Daniel Singleton says, Hi chaps, can I request you congratulate my friend Chris, you can call him Miller, I maybe should have just said Miller, <laughs> on his engagement to Julia on the next show you record. Hey, Congratulations. Days. Congratulations. Lee Shanes sent us messages about Robert II. Another one, in fact. Hello, chaps. Little Rex fact, and only reason Robert II should be eligible for the Rex Factor. Robert was responsible for making the official animal of Scotland the unicorn. He chose this because, according to folklore, the unicorn is the natural enemy of the official animal of England, the lion. Is it? It... Well, but I I would want to see that fairy tale or whatever it is um, play out. Like, what are the relative merits of the horse versus the lion? Obviously, he's going to go for the charge with his well, head. Well, yeah, the lion charges in, and the I think he's faint, he faints with the head. Hmm. Uh, I've been watching too much boxing, and <laughs> turns around and gives him a kick. <laughs> Still, that's pretty cool, though. It's the thing to do. Yeah, but it's obviously the English were looking at that, thinking, "Hang on, but that's not real. Can we do that? <laughs> we do that." And the Welsh go, "Well, we're having a dragon then. Yeah, <laughs> take that." <laughs> And some messages from new Privy Councillors. 
Yeah. Ed Williams, if I get a mention, can it be a big up for David Lloyd George and Llewellyn the Great? Big up those Welsh classics. Regarding dynasty, I think it seems unfair that a monarch who had kids but lived long and out-survived them, but left grandchildren and therefore direct descendants, e.g. Alexander III of Scots, or Edward III hmm. of England, get the same zero-point score as monarchs who were rubbish at producing offspring, e.g. Elizabeth I. The former did put in the effort, at least, and have left their direct line. Could you say... Uh, get half or quarter of a point per viable grandchild that survives them. Anyway, just a thought, and no doubt way over-complicating it retrospectively. That bit's certainly true, but I also <laughs> think um, I also think that uh, that's a really good point. The, hmm. the, the, uh, the segment's called Dynasty, and they are providing a dynasty. Yeah, and it's not their fault that their son snuffed it. But In fact, it's, it's better, isn't it, that yeah. they, they are able to survive long enough to let their grandchildren raise. I think particularly David I, when his son died, he had to then go around the country establishing his grandson as the mm. heir, showing him off to everybody, saying, look, here you go. It's just as valuable. I think if we were to do anything with the points, it'd mm. be... But then it's tricky where you sort of would end up... Like, if you're going to be counting grandchildren surviving as well, unless you were to only do it only for his son. Yeah, I because think otherwise, so. Victoria... I mean, she's oh, already... Oh, God, she'd definitely win then, wouldn't she? <laughs> Suddenly, everybody's score just goes down. Yeah. I think it'd be, if you have no surviving children, you'd look at the grandchildren. Mm. That's an interesting idea. Craig Ballantyne. My friend Louise McBean is undertaking a glorious project to sew a portrait of every famous woman in history. Brilliant. It is called Rebel Woman Embroidery, and she has sewn, at this point, 168 women so what? far. And has 1,652 to go. Oh. The last woman she embroidered was the amazing Saint Margaret of Scotland. She was one that was Malcolm yeah. the Third's wife that yeah. we were all very impressed. She was by. a bit of a ledge. Mm. Please check her. Please check out her work on Instagram, Facebook, and WordPress. Please, can you share that with me because I will forget that. Mm. And finally, Chris Grafton speculates that your dynasty score means you must nearly have overtaken Ayers in the overall standings. It's <laughs> a great point. <laughs> Brilliant. I've probably overtaken them already just by living for 33 years. Yeah. yeah. So thank you very much for your messages. Please do continue to uh, get in touch with us on our various social media. Yes, that that I really enjoyed that one. Hmm. Next time we will find out what happens after the murder of James the First. Will Atoll prevail? Will Queen Joan fight back? What's going to happen? See you next time. Bye bye. <laughs>